Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. This is the 19th T podcast here in Marsh. Nathan Drudy back with you for another week. Drudster, welcome, my friend. How are the arms, first and foremost? Because you paddled a paddled a mile on the weekend as a uh, an able assistant in the Rotto swim. We did, yes. Uh, body is sore, mate. Like I'm not going to lie, it was. Um... <laughs> Yeah, the old you kayak. Even swimming, mate. <laughs> mate, I everyone was saying that paddling was very difficult. A lot of the swimmers were even saying it. The conditions were far worse than last mm. year. The swell would have been up around that maybe one and a half to one point eight meter, thirty knots south uh, westerlies, which were which was really nice uh, battling into that shit all day. So I was absolutely knackered. But shout out to the girls. Um, didn't quite make it. They were on track for all the normal cutoffs, but um, without the uh, obviously with things being brought forward and conditions deteriorating, they didn't didn't quite make it. But um, proud nonetheless. They were they were very very gallant in defeat, as were many other boats that we saw out there on the day. Mm. Speaking of um, kayaks and boats, I've seen yeah. a few of them uh, at, at my end in recent days. It's become the vessel of choice here in uh, the River City, the Olympic City of Brisbane, uh, Dredster. It's been just uh, the most surreal weather event, I think. Uh, having lived here uh, well, my entire life, other than the three-year hiatus in Perth, but through the 2011 floods uh, and everyone kind of referencing those uh, in relation to this, it, same sort of levels, but an entirely different event. You know, 2011 was a prolonged period of about two weeks worth of sustained rain. This was like six or 700 mils in 48 hours. And it was uh, biblical in every sense of the word, I think. And look, I'm incredibly fortunate um, to be uh, on high ground. Put it this way, if, if we go under here, then Brisbane is essentially Atlantis. Um, so I'm, I'm lucky but a, a lot luckier than many others who, you know, people even who lived through 2011 and, and didn't get a drop of water are now underwater, mm. completely submerged. So um, suffice to say that uh, there's probably not a golf course in southeast Queensland that isn't um, affected in some way, shape or form by the, the floods. And, and um, to illustrate that, I, I noticed a little earlier, um, Mullaney Golf Club uh, is closed at the moment through until March 2nd, they posted on their Instagram earlier. And anyone familiar with Southeast Queensland knows that Mullaney is in fact in the Sunshine Coast hinterland. It's up in the mountains, Druids, and it suffered um, enough uh, damage through the weather uh, to be closed uh, for at least the next four or five days. The amount of courses that I've seen, I mean, look at anything in Brisbane, just around me here, Ashgrove, Capera, Indrapilly, all underwater. Nudging. You look along the... Uh, Nudgy, you posted that photo. Royal Queensland's underwater. All the ones along the river, you know, the likes of the Brisbane Golf Club, Jindalee, Gales, Brookwater, I'm sure, has suffered a little bit of damage. Down the coast, you've got Meadowbrook, um, you've got the Glades, you've got Carbrook on the river here in Brisbane. Like, quite literally, golf courses, you cannot see grass completely underwater. So, um, Certainly feeling for those clubs and those courses because it, it's not only the initial 
shock and the initial, you know, inability to to play and, and receive goal for four or five days, the recovery efforts are astronomical. And, you know, when a lot of courses operate on a pretty thin budget as it is from a maintenance perspective, a lot of people will be feeling the pinch. So big shout out uh, to, I know a lot of courses um, tune in to, to this podcast, um, Caboolture Golf Club, whoever runs the Caboolture Golf Club Instagram, is one of the one of the great engagers of our social media account, and I've seen that uh, they themselves have hit a bit of trouble in the last couple of days. So, we just mm-hmm. wanted to say that we are certainly thinking about all the, the golf course operators and maintenance crew and, and members, for that matter, who will have you know a big part of their lives affected for the foreseeable future as a result of the uh, the Brisbane floods. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, Cam. Climate change is very real, my friend. We've had mm. nine forty one degree days this year in Perth, which is the most that we've ever had. You're getting 600 mil of rain. I think Broome had 600 mil of rain at the, about a month ago as well. Stretton Dill, one of the very good listeners sent a photo through. So crazy shit's happening, KM. Well, when you, when you hear once in 100 year flood twice in a decade, yeah, uh, it's, <laughs> it's starting to become a patently obvious that maybe there's a few other factors and a few other things going on. We had that uh, rail just... washed away as well in South Australia. Unbelievable. Yeah. There's anyway. some, yeah, there's some shit going on. It's between, you know, biblical floods, pandemics, international conflicts. It's a lot going on at the moment. Yeah. It's a lot to process and register, but Hey, there was a, we just talk back off. There was a great post from the Batuta Advocate over the weekend as well that said millennials, you know, gear up for, I think it was, you know, having having dealt with um, a pandemic, something along those lines, biblical floods and now World War Three. So, um, yeah, mm. been through a lot in the, last, uh, in the last week. But thoughts with everyone in QLD, KM, not great to see. Drew, so you have a fantastic chat coming up a little later in this episode with Lincoln Ty. Uh, I wasn't able to join you for that, but as we're increasingly seeing, the ones you do on your own are tending to be the best ones. <laughs> so uh, power to you. And and if your enthusiasm post that conversation is anything to go by, then I for one am certainly looking forward to hearing that. So Lincoln Ty a little later in this episode, but a few bits of news for us to just get through first. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Athena Championship was run across the weekend on WPGA at the Sandringham Golf Club, uh, won by West Australian amateur Kirsten Rudgley. And this is a name that you have heard us mention uh, with increasing volume in, in, in recent months, probably to be fair for the past 12 months, I'd suggest. Uh, her win at the Athena Druids on the weekend against a quality field, I think, is another huge tick uh, in her box, another step in the right direction, and I think affirms everything that many people far smarter than you and I in the golf industry have been saying about her for a while now. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting, Lincoln actually talks about Kirsten in uh, in the episode because he played with her at TPS last year as well and said that he's never seen an amateur with the, with the short game that Kirsten possesses. So, uh, incredibly high praise. We know that she hits a very long ball. Uh, defeated all who came before her. Uh, obviously, Cassie Porter as well, who, who you've mentioned many a time. KM, uh, Steph Bunky as well. So heaps uh, of names, and, and yeah, just if and of course Grace Kim as well. So 
Uh, leaving all behind her was uh, Kirsten Rudgley, and it's fantastic to to see. I think you know you look at the the names that are on that in even in that semi final uh, list. There, it's it's quite phenomenal the future of women's golf in this country. Marshy, probably more exciting than the men's side. Absolutely, and I think you you know you've kind of rattled them off there. But if you look at the pointy and Rudgley wins over Kim in a final, I think the semi finalists uh, were also Davidson and Porter, two names that we've spoken about an awful lot in the past six or seven weeks. Look at all these all these players under the age of kind of twenty two. Uh, you add in Steph. to LPGA status, uh, the women's game. When you consider we haven't even mentioned names like Sue O, oh, Minji Lee, and Hannah Green, uh, the the next wave of, of of female talent from a golfing perspective in this country is incredibly exciting. So, awesome concept too, Dreads. I really liked the Athena. Uh, for people who didn't see it, played over Saturday Sunday. Saturday was a points based competition with a series of individual challenges, uh, if you will. So there was a hundred yard uh, wedge shot. There was a um, you know, kind of closest to pin. There was a um, greenside bunker, but incredibly difficult one there at Sandringham, also closest to pin. There was a 60-yard 60 uh, 60 pitch um, that they'd strategically placed in one of the fairways there at uh, Sandringham to put a, uh, not a small tree, put it that way, in between the green and the pitch shot. So, again, a little bit of shot shaping. Just some really cool challenges that I like to see on the Saturday for points. And then they went into kind of a head-to-head um, playoff scenario on the Sunday based off where they stood from a points perspective from the Saturday. So important, I think, that in between these events, you know, we've seen a number of events now on the WPGA this summer, both standalone and then mixed in with uh, with the PGA events, that you have something to to just whet the appetite a little bit, something a little bit different. Uh, and I think the Athena certainly ticked that box in terms of keeping both the players, but but also the fans engaged. Hundred percent, yeah, really like it, KM. Something a little different um, than what we're what we're used to seeing. And, and I just want to shout out massive to Sandy Golf Links. To be honest, oh, like my goodness, Mike, Mike Cocking and the team at OCM have done a phenomenal job. And there was a, a great piece. Um, I think it was written by Brad Clifton uh, earlier in the week, and and I could be completely wrong here, but uh, for Australian Golf Digest that spoke about. Um, how he had a dream that the President's Cup uh, did return to Royal Melbourne in 2028. Uh, and he was playing at Sandringham Golf Links, of course, a public golf course. Um, and hitting up on him was Colin Morikawa and up ahead was Bryson DeChambeau. And just, he was like, how great would it be to have, you know, some level of public golf access <laughs> for the President's Cup? But unfortunately, Sandringham's probably going to be used as the car park once again so um but the course is is phenomenal it really really is and I, I don't think it's one of those ones as we've said many times before that i don't think it does it justice through the television or, or instagram i think it's one that you've really got to see on on the uh in the flesh so i look forward to doing that when when we can yeah phenomenal work by uh, the team of ogilvy cocking and the mead of course mike cocking uh, great friend of this podcast and to your point like outrageous that you get that sort of golf in Melbourne for $35, mm. uh, $40 to, to walk 18. You know, it is, it's quite literally uh, maintained by Richard Forsyth and his team across the road at Royal Melbourne. You know, they split off in the morning and the team goes out to Royal Melbourne and half the team go out 
to Sandringham across the road. And this is, as I said, something you can walk onto and play for around about 40 bucks for a round of golf. So it is, um, it's an enormous advertisement, I think, for public golf. Uh, incredibly fortunate for people in Melbourne. I was talking to uh, my wife's uncle. I was down in Melbourne last week, talked to him. He plays it semi-regularly. Mm. Uh, amongst a bunch of other courses and loves it so yeah it's it, it's it's awesome and I, I would love to see I don't think it's repeatable everywhere but I think there are some other parts of the country where a course like Royal Melbourne not that there's anything like Royal Melbourne but a course like Royal Melbourne could potentially look to operate something similar in other mm. parts because I think it's a great little gateway uh, to get people into the game so yet yeah, uh, the, the course may well have been the biggest winner out of the week but Kirsten Rudgley was she was phenomenal to take home the Athena Championship uh, Drewster in some other news uh, closer to home announced during the week as well that the winner of the PGA of Australasia's Order of Merit if not otherwise exempt uh, will gain entry to this year's US Open at the Brookline Country Club huge huge news for the moment, what looks like Jed Morgan, uh, pending other performances at the back end. But also, I mean, we we're only talking last week and we're talking to the man himself a little later this week, so I'll ask him. Someone like an Anthony Quayle, who I think sits third currently, had the, the dangle of the, the Japan tour to go back to and now it's probably saying, bugger that, because I can't get myself to Brookline going back over to play on the Japanese tour. I can if, you know, if I knock off maybe... TPS at Bonnie Doon this week and then if I follow it up with a good performance if not win the New South Wales Open in a couple of weeks time he's right in the money so the dangle now to get this incentive halfway through the summer is huge news yeah absolutely enormous um, enormous news for I mean let's be honest it's likely going to be Jed let's, let's be <laughs> for the sake of news we'll say there are other people still involved but uh Look, great, great news regardless of, of who does go, obviously. Of course, wrapping up a DP World Tour card um, as well, which is which is wonderful. And, and I guess, you know, people who deserve a credit here is the PGA Tour of Australasia and Golf Australia for brokering this. Um, they've done done a wonderful job of, I guess, uh, turning their back on the Saudis and, and the proposed Asian Tour investment um, and having a stop in all of that. And we'll get to that in a moment with Phil, but... For, for them to, I guess, lock up three tour cards um, and then on the DP World Tour have a spot at the US Open and then also have three spots into the Open Championship out of the Vic Open is, is enormous. So massive pat on the back to, to the Aussie Tour um, and, and the guys and, and um, the exec running that at the moment because they've done a very, very good job, Kay, and we've, we've given them plenty of knocks, but this one deserves um, a massive pat on the back. Look forward to chatting to Jed live from Brookline. Maybe after the warm-up round a little later this year at the US Open. Uh, I'd love to see that mullet be the second mullet on the fairways there, I'd suggest, with his good mate Cameron Smith. Uh, Drewster, also uh, closer to home, I mentioned it, uh, Bonnie Doon, the host of this week's uh, Players Series, uh, hosted by Braith and Astor. Mm. Uh, of course, Ciro Sports Management Head and good friend of this podcast as well. He is uh, one of, if not the most passionate man in golf in Australia, I think, uh, is Braith, and he is hosting the TPS event in Sydney at Bonnie Doon. Uh, I hope, I truly hope that the inclement weather, which is heading south and currently ravaging northern New South Wales, uh, holds out because this course, from what I've seen uh, via some social media today with some warm-up rounds happening, looks an absolute picture 
yeah. No, it's a treat. It's an absolute treat. Uh, and and I think we saw it last year as well. It might have been one of the very first events back, I think, was Bonnie Doon last mm. year. So um, a, a treat of a golf course. So hopefully the weather gods uh, play nicely and, and we do get a tournament happening this week. So, yeah, plenty of practice rounds being had. And, and I concur with you. It looks fantastic. And, of course, it kicks off a, a little round of events uh, in New South Wales because you've got the TPS Hunter Valley. Uh, and then you've got the New South Wales Open, uh, as we mentioned. So uh, a big couple of weeks coming up in New South Wales and a lot of guys playing closer to home. You know, a lot of, a lot of the New South Wales talent, obviously, uh, Demi Papadados coming off his fantastic win at the Vic Open, I'm sure is probably staying at the Coogee Bay Hotel this week. Uh, thanks to the sponsors, you got Gailey will be back. And I think he was just out at Dubbo for... Double open was Gailey, and, and he looks like he's in good form. He's, he's hitting balls on the range. So looking forward to seeing those New South Wales guys get the opportunity to play a little closer to home. Um, speaking of closer to home, Drew's announcement. Uh, geez, it's been a bit on, hasn't it? Mm. I'm just I'm just recalling everything that's happened since we last spoke last week. Um, in that time, uh, it was uh, officially announced that Victoria will host the 2026 Commonwealth Games. Uh, why should we care about that, do you ask? Well, <laughs> it's, it's a great event, the Com Games. Uh, you and I both know that. But just going to see this now because there's a long time to go. What are we? It's four years. I reckon we're going to see golf at the Commonwealth Games. It's not currently a Commonwealth Games sport. I've got a good feeling and maybe a little bit of an inside track that golf is going to feature at the 2026 Commonwealth Games in Victoria. Because what I'll say is this, if it doesn't, it's criminal. You don't take the opportunity to take golf anywhere in that state, but particularly somewhere along the sand belt or even down at like a 13th beach, St Andrews beach, somewhere down the Mornington Peninsula, because I know it is the intention to take things regional uh, for this Commonwealth Games in Victoria rather than have them in Melbourne again, like it was in 2006. But it would be, given um, the plethora of options available, criminal not to have golf included in the program at the Commonwealth Games in 2026. Agree. The uh, fascinating watch. I don't know when the cutoffs are for the um, the sports being added. I know, like in the Olympics, it's like twelve years ahead. So hopefully, we haven't missed the boat on the Com Games. I feel like it might be a little bit more relaxed. But um, thinks it's a little great. more hit and giggle. I'd love, I'd love for it to. I, I I just think in in that scenario, I know you're talking that it's they want to take it regionally. I, I think it would just be a massive opportunity missed to put golf. Uh, on the uh, really on the map again in Victoria from a public perspective, like let's look at Sandringham golf links, you know, somewhere, somewhere like that. I mean, it's a world-class golf course that as we say, could, um, could certainly serve uh, very well at the Commonwealth games. Obviously Royal Melbourne's a no brainer, um, but anywhere throughout the sand belt would be lovely. Or if it does need to be regional 13th beach is, is clearly the, uh, the best option. What I also think is, uh, an obvious opportunity here is to try something different, mm. right? Like the biggest criticism we had of Olympic golf was that it was four rounds of stroke play. Like I, I can see that all the time. So this is a huge opportunity to have a team event, a mixed team event, a mixed tournament, just something that's not 72 holes of stroke play Thursday to Sunday. Please. Agree. I pitched my idea. Do you want me to write? Do you want me to write to the Commonwealth Games? I think maybe it's worth a submission. Maybe it's worth a submission to Commonwealth Games Australia to okay. consider. Yeah. Oh, we'll see. Why not? All right. Maybe I'll, we can. I'll pen a letter. 
on okay, Letterhead. Mate. We should oh. probably develop Letterhead. Uh, t- t- branding suite because um, we? <laughs> we write a lot of letters <laughs> <laughs> for our cease and, and desist then, responses. <laughs> just, just finally, we spoke in length last week about the developments of the Saudi Golf League. Uh, Phil, wow, Phil's had a week. Phil put out a statement, and, and funnily enough, we spoke about crafting statements. Whoever was on the payroll from a PR perspective for Phil earned their cash because the statement uh, managed to serve about six different masters. Uh, I thought it was incredible how he wove between apologising to the PGA Tour, his fellow players, even apologised to the Saudi Arabians there at one point, um, but also said that he felt vindicated that golf needed a change and he'd been a part of that change uh, before eventually saying that he was going to step away for a period of time. So um, long story short, we're not going to see Phil for a while. And speaking of stepping away, uh, that's seemingly all his sponsors have been doing for the past six or seven days, Drew. It's because... Uh, I think in last count, it was five or six. Callaway, gone. KPMG, gone. Workday, gone. Mize and Main, gone. Amstel Beer, gone. Everyone has just said, catch your fill. So uh, there's, I mean, there's definitely people who've had worse weeks, but probably not in golf. Yeah, you know things are bad when Workday steps away. I mean, how much do they have invested in golf (laughs) at the moment? They got the Workday charity open. Like they're enormous. They're an enormous company. Uh, it's workday. Uh, yeah. Look, you know, not unsurprising. I mean, I always find it interesting when these statements come out that they say, oh, "I'm just taking some time away from the game." Like, oh, I don't know what that. Why? Like, like what? What are you going to do for the next? Yeah, but what are you going to do for the next six weeks? Like, just rip the bandaid off now. Like, mm. just come out and play this week. Just come play the Arnold Palmer. Well, Crack on. The room. The rumors are that um, Augusta. Is is where he'll take the break to, which would be phenomenal place to walk back into the first time. Oh, that'd be so that'd be so good. I would love that. Like Phil has done his reputation absolutely he's he's capitulated itself. Correct. But oh my days, what what a circus we have on our hands. And I love it. I love it. I love every minute of this. Like, it's just, it is bananas at the moment. Mm. Like, so anyway, uh, it's not unsurprising to see sponsors pulling away. Um, Yeah. The the reaction from the public has been, I would say the reaction has been mixed to the sponsors walking away. I think there's been a lot of people who have been sort of like, yeah, I get it. But a lot of people are like, oh, it doesn't really change anything for me. Um, and, and I wonder what it is like in those situations where sponsors are faced with something that is out of their control um, mm. and then they, you know, they're pulling money away from people. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if uh, Bentley pull money away from Bryson, right? Or I think Brian. Yeah, I think, I think it's in Bentley, many right? respects, and you, I mean, you'd know this far better than me working closer to it uh, from, a, from a sponsorship perspective, but in many respects, when you have someone of Phil's stature talking about an issue uh, that transcends golf, i.e. Saudi Arabia and mm-hmm. the Saudi Arabian government, then the move to walk away from that individual from a sponsorship perspective is very um, very little about golf fans and probably just more broadly, right? Because make no mistake that that story a week ago was uh, bigger than golf in terms of its coverage. It was, you know, a leading American sportsman getting into bed with the Saudi Arabian government. Mm. 
Mm. And so that drags in eyeballs from a variety of different places other than your core golf fans. And so when you're a KPMG, for instance, a global international company, I don't necessarily think you want to run any sort of risk of being associated with that individual. So I think, yeah, it's interesting. Like for golf fans, it's probably like, oh, geez, Phil's getting cancelled. This is a bit harsh. But for the broader audience, when you um, really associate yourself in any way, shape or form with the Saudi Arabian government, it's probably... Yeah, it's 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 end of days type stuff, I would have thought. Pretty pretty quick decision internally, I'd say, at those five or six companies. I'll tell you what, though. The, thing, the only thing that got me with KPMG withdrawing is they have three offices in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like they're taking the moral high ground, like, oh, we're not operating in Saudi Arabia. Like, the doors true, are still open. True global company, Drew. Yeah. True global country. They have yeah. presence everywhere they are. They are. Uh, and then just finally um because this may actually have been the first time in a while that i genuinely did not watch a whole of pga to golf <laughs> this weekend um because the honda god you couldn't honestly i think there's a variety of different things i think it's the period of the year because we're still kind of warming up to major season but it's also the fact that it falls in between two of my favourite PGA Tour stops. It's inconvenient. Like, I'd love Riviera to go into Bay Hill. That would be ideal. But we've got this, this unnecessary and inconvenient stop that I refuse to engage with. Anyway, Sepp Straka become the first Austrian to win on the PGA Tour, which is a great bit of history. We've had a few of those lately. We've had Leona Maguire was the first uh, Irish woman to win on the LPGA. We've had a couple of different firsts pop up, which is, you know, hashtag grow the game and all that great stuff. Um, Daniel Berger. Wow. Just from what I've seen from a highlights perspective, leaked more oil than the Exxon Valdez in the back nine. There. He was struggling. And then Shane Larry, um, what we often regard as the spirit animal of this podcast, uh, did his absolute best. I think he was second strokes gain, tee to green Saturday and Sunday to fly home and albeit for an errant tee shot on the 72nd hole today, probably put himself in a bad Position, however, Sepp Straka can only beat what's in front of him and uh, and got the job done to become, as I said, the first Austrian to win on the PGA Tour. So congratulations to Sepp. And onwards and upwards to Bay Hill for the Kings Tournament, Druids. Too much golf. Don't care about the Honda. Should have, it's one that can go. I'll make my kill list soon. There's one that can go. Uh, but like I, I agree with you. I think a, a stretch of... Um, Phoenix Open into Riv into Bay Hill would be sick. Like, what a strong, what a strong three weeks of golf. Like, I don't know. We just, it just, no, nah, I don't know. We're getting off topic. My here. huge no, we, advocate for bringing it back to like forty events because I think we play like forty-eight weeks out of fifty-two. Like, them, like, can 20, we bring it back to forty? Twenty-six. We don't oh, need to play well, golf all year round. Like twenty-six incremental. Incremental change. It's not going to cut it in half. Next uh, next Monday, I'll bring my kill list of tournaments. All right, excellent tournaments that can go. It'll surprise some people. It'll surprise some people. Anyway, let's not delay any longer because you, as I said at the top, had a sensational chat with Lincoln Ty. You even said to me uh, quite convincingly, top ten chats Mm -hmm. you've enjoyed. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. Very, very good chat. Very funny. Uh, lots to lots to unpack. We talk about the impacts of the past two years. Obviously, we've spoken to lots of younger guys 
um, and how, you know, I guess two years, 18 months, two years out of the game hasn't necessarily affected them significantly. But, you know, Lincoln, 32 years old, uh, changes things. So, um, yeah, plenty to discuss. I'm not going to give it all away. Just go, go and listen to it when we get into it in a minute. So, anyway, let's get into Lincoln Tie. Lincoln, thanks very much for joining us from a wet and soggy Wollongong, mate. Great to have you on the pod. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Uh, excited to um, get a run on the podcast, mate. I hear a lot about this. So, um, yeah, it'll be good. Good things or bad things or a bit of both? Or... Mixed. Mixed. No, 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 no. I put up I put up a story tonight on my Instagram that I was going to be on. I had a few guys say that they love that they love your podcast and um, and how you guys run it. So, yeah, it's exciting. Excellent. That's good. Good to hear. There are certainly mixed feelings out there, depending on who you talk to, mate. So, <laughs> whether, uh, that's good. Good to hear. But uh, how's how are things tracking, mate? In, in season 2021, 22, this wraparound kind of season that we we now have, um, obviously a bit of a, um, I guess a tough tough start for yourself with miscuts and and whatnot. But how how are you sort of assessing where your game's at at the moment? Um, yeah, it's been hard, you know, like the wraparound year and all that sort of stuff. And then coming out of COVID and, um, and lockdowns and then back in and then sort of trying to get it back going at the start of the year. So no, it was good. I had a decent start to the year and then, um, it's funny what, what happens in golf. Like I tell, I tell people that I help with their game or, you know, a couple of mates and things to, um, not try and play swings and just hit the, hit the shots that's in front of you and things like that. And I find myself playing swings and things like that you know like it's stuff that i know from 20 years ago it's just dumb shit that you do when um when you're trying too hard and stuff so yeah it's um it's been a bit of a learning curve again and going back to basics and all that sort of stuff for me but um i'm excited for this next few weeks bonnie dune should be good and cyprus and that sort of stuff so yeah everything um everything should go good speaking of instructing uh i hear that you've taken a fairly um prominent young athlete under your wing by the name of Steph Kiriakou. Can you maybe tell us uh, how, how this came about? I got given yeah, that tip um, off from uh, yeah, your very good friend new, um, and, and my friend, Jimmy, pa- Jimmy Papadados. Yeah, I've got my new mentoring program called Lincoln Type Performance Golf. So, yeah, I take that quite seriously. Um, no, nah, but we, we were just um, taking, taking the piss out of it the other week and I was um, pretending to give some advice and things like that. And, um no, we had we had a lot of fun down at Vic Open, and um, Dimmy likes to g a few things up, and I like to g him up too. But um, yeah, it was unreal to see Dimmy get the win down there. Yeah, I was just going to mention, obviously, very good mates with with Dimmy, and we'll uh, we'll touch on maybe your history in a little while because, as listeners to this podcast would know, one of our or pretty much the only research we do is scrolling back through Instagram profiles. Wow. So that that was a Don't good. Don't go after- too far back on mine, mate. That's what we do. We go back to the very first. <laughs> Post. So I've got a few pulled out, uh, a la Stereo Sonic, that I need to, wow. to raise, raise with Lincoln Tire. But uh, just tell us about that. Uh, I guess, you know, seeing Dimmy win down there, such a popular figure of, of the Australian tour, it gets him some fantastic rewards. Obviously, not only a trophy and some great, you know, great checkboxes, a bit of extra cash for him. What's that like to see such a close mate winning a, you know, one of the biggest tournaments that's on this calendar anyway? Yeah, it's unreal. I sort of, um, I played average and missed the cut and then I sort of um, tried to stay around on the Friday night and, um, you know, hang with him and things like that because I had a hit with him in the practice round on Tuesday and I said to him, I said, you're ready to go. Like normally, um, Dimmy's ball striking is okay and his chipping and putting is unreal, but um, to see his ball striking, his driver where it was at, 
um, was unreal. It's the best I've seen him hit it. So I said to him, I think I had three under for nine holes and he had four under. And I thought, shit, I can't play any better than that. So I, I said to her, I said, mate, you're ready to go. I said, you're, you're on this week. So, um, no, it was good to see him have a go. And, um, you know, I put a bit of superstition in his head when he had that seven under or whatever he had in the first round. I said, oh, we went to um, we went to Macca's and had a ham and cheese toastie and a coffee when you had seven under. I said, let's do that today for the third round. So we went and did that. And, um, yeah, we just go and talk some rubbish. And, no, it was, it was great to see um, him go well. And I actually said to him at probably 3 a.m. last last uh monday morning when we're out in melbourne and we were and we were all pissed and everything i said mate no one deserves it any more than you do so he's one of the nicest blokes out there and he's such a hard worker and i'm really proud of him what were the celebrations like oh uh, yeah i i wasn't down there after he won so we waited a week and we actually had one of our good mates weddings last week so all the boys were there and um yeah we went out afterwards in in melbourne and um yeah, I, I told him I owed him a few drinks, so I tried to bury him with vodka lime sodas, and I think I think I got him pretty good. So yeah, that was good. <laughs> the old vodka lime soda. Yeah, Jesse, I get him on those. Jimmy really strikes me as a vodka Red Bull kind of guy. I don't know why. Just nah, he he's a pretender, mate. He he thinks he's vodka Red Bull, but he has three vodka lime sodas. He's on the ground. <laughs> We got uh, we got told by Jed Morgan a couple of weeks ago that his good friend Louis Dobler was nicknamed the Atlas because every time they go out in the piss, he offers. Uh, or he promises the world and delivers an atlas. So uh, that, <laughs> I thought that was that was very that good. Is funny. Uh, that is funny. What's I guess what's in all seriousness though with Jimmy? What what is that relationship like between you guys? Because golf is um, such an individual sport. You you're naturally competing against each other, but to have have a good mate like that out there on the tour is probably something that I guess people don't really necessarily understand how important that is. It's individual. It's lonely. It can be a very lonely yeah. place. What's it like when you, you know, you've actually got the, someone like Jimmy. The out best there. thing is, is, is the stuff off the course, um, how we support each other. And we, we've got so many um, common interests. So we're into the same dance music. We're into going and uh, training at the gym together and, um, you know, those things outside of golf is when you find the common ground is when the weeks aren't as hard. So I find myself looking forward to, oh, and we really enjoy eating as well. So Dimmy and I go into Nando's, Suvlaki, things like that. Like we'll be talking about like um, before we play, we'll be like, man, I can't wait to go and have Suvlaki after we after we play and things like that. So nah, um, it's, it's more the time off the course that you enjoy. Um, but yeah, it's great to have someone out there to support to like to support you and support each other. So, like I've know I know Dimmy's game I think is good as anyone, and he knows my game as good as anyone. So to bounce to bounce off each other with um, things why we're going good, why we're going bad, and even just to be there for each other for support is unreal. So you, um, yeah, are you two of those guys who research like restaurants ahead of time when you say you're going to Queensland for the Queensland PGA? Are you researching? Places it's definitely not. It's definitely not restaurants. We're pretty simple. So if you can, if you can get a, a full chicken and chips, or a souvlaki, or the biggest parmigiana in Australia, we're there. We're parmigiana and a, and a schooner kind of guys. So no, um, we're more more about volume. I think that's excellent. That is that is yeah. outstanding. And uh, do you share the same love of fishing as Dimmy? Because no, I mean, I'm not. I'm not much of a fisherman. My thing outside of golf is I'm into cars. So. Yes, um, but I yeah, know I know that I know Dimmy's. I know Dimmy's very much into his fishing. But see, even with that, like I, I couldn't really give two stuffs about fishing to tell you the truth. But I talk to him about fishing because I know that that's his. Um, that's his interest. 
So I asked him, oh, have you, been, have you got any lately? And then he talked to me about a fish snapper and that sort of stuff. And then he asked me, oh, how's your car going and things like that. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah that's, that's definitely his thing. He, he tells me that he wakes up at 3 a.m. in the morning and he's so stoked to get up and play. Uh, I mean, go up and get up and go fishing than he is when he has to wake up at 7 a.m. to go and play golf. So, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, it is. It is. It's good to have passions outside of the game. We'll get to your cars uh, in a moment and, and your love of cars. Um, I, I do, I guess there's so many different directions that we could take this in, but one of the normal questions we ask is how you first got, got into the game. But I think we might get to that in a, in a moment. I want to talk about the last mm-hmm. sort of two, two years um, and I guess how that sort of affected your career obviously COVID and um and the cancellations of the the Aussie tour and the Aussie major events and and whatnot and the challenges that it's been presented and I certainly don't want to dump you in the the old blokes category of of the tour but you're probably <laughs> seasoned mate seasoned. <laughs> you're probably you know uh in the older batch compared to you know this young generation that is just seemingly endless at the moment but how mm. have the last two years affected your career because when we were you know highly critical of of the tour last year there was clearly two groups of people there was one who was the i guess the young generation who it didn't really matter if they lost 18 months out of their career and then there was another group of guys who 18 months out of the game is really critical for their career to the, you know it's kind of at that point and i feel like you maybe fit in that ladder and i'm just keen to understand how you know, whether that's accurate or, or how you've kind of assessed the last No, no, years. it's definitely accurate. You feel like you've got two years robbed away from you at a at an international tour school. Mm. So I've always I've always tried to go to uh, a tour school that's better than the tour I'm on every year since I've turned pro. So I've been to Asia, I went to China, I've tried I've had a go at uh Cornfairy Q school four times. Um, and I've I've always tried to do something like that. And it sort of does get to the stage now. Um that uh, it's not it's not out of necessity that I need to start kicking some goals, but you sort of get to the point. I just want to realise my potential. I think you know, I um, me still playing in Australia is not is not how I envisioned myself when I was thirty two years of age when I was growing up. But um, you know, it's been a good journey and I've learned a lot. But um, yeah, it's hard. You know, like the game is changing a lot as well. Um, I remember when I used to be able to play average and come top twenty in a tour event. And now if I play average, I miss a cut. So these, these kids that come out now, they're full on prepared. And there's a lot of starts for amateurs in, in our pro events now as well. So if you're top sort of 10, 15 in Australia as an amateur, you'll play probably 10 pro events in a year. So, but when I was top 10 in Australia as an amateur, you might play one or two. So they're, they're coming out and they're ready to go now. So guys are getting better and, um, I guess I've sort of stayed as good as what I was um, when I when I was sort of more successful on our tour. But you know, in saying that, it's it's not the be all and end all in life. But you know, I've got I've got a few years left that I want to have a bit more of a crack. I think I might change um, like a Q school that I'm going to go and have a go at. So I'm thinking that I might do an Asian Q school uh, because they're getting a bit of help from Saudi and DP and things like that. And it's seeming like there's more money to play for. Um, but, you know, Japan doesn't really interest me because I don't think it suits my game at all. Um, and I think Europe's a bit far away. Like, um, 
you know, if you get on full time, yeah, you can do it. But yeah, you know, after talking to Dimmy about that sort of stuff as well, um, America, I've tried heaps of time, a few times, and you know, it's um, it's hard to get on there now. And then if you get on, you're on a secondary tour. So yeah, there's a there's there's a lot of roads that you can go now. And I guess with the time I've had, um, you sort of work out your path. So yeah, it's a tough one. But yeah, the two years you do feel a bit robbed, but I do say to people, um, as a joke, I, I say JobKeeper was my best year on tour. <laughs> I'm buying a Ferrari with my JobKeeper. No, I'm only joking. You shouldn't laugh, but it's it's so true, right? Like, I think... Yeah, well, yeah, the, the purses and things that we play for now. When I first turned pro, we had seven $1 million purse um, events, and now we're lucky to have one or two. Yeah, and I think so that's... you could make a solid living. I think that's been the, the frustrating part. I mean... Like to have the Aussie Open cancelled two years in a row, I think was the biggest kick in the guts because it was more the rhetoric and we're getting a little bit down a wormhole here, but you know, the rhetoric was that, well, if we don't have the international players coming back, there's no point in running it. And it was kind of like, that's just a massive fuck you to our yeah. Aussie tour guys. I'm, like, I'm who- happy to talk. I'm happy to talk about this. I just think that there needs to be more promotion of domestic players. Um, mm. Like you, like, um, you're in you're in WA, so you could walk down um, you could walk down the street and name um, and see like an Aussie rules player that plays for your team, and you could name them, right? Mm. But if you go to a local golf club and you say, "Name me ten domestic Australasian PGA Tour players," they couldn't name them. Yeah, which is a shame because we play the equivalent of NRL, AFL, and NBL. So that that is a shame. I think that and our our best shots are as good as the P- USPGA's best shots. Yeah. Um, but I think that there, that we do have a lot to offer. Um, but, yeah, I think that the promotion of domestic players needs to come up and we shouldn't have to rely so much on the guys coming back over. Even though we love that, we love guys coming back over like Cam Smith and all that sort of stuff and Adam Scott comes back all the time. And, you know, I think that's great. But, yeah, the promotion of domestic players needs to be pumped up a little more um, by the tour. But in saying that... Um, it has been hard for the tour and it's been hard for us, but the Australian Open being canned, I, I didn't think that was right. But um, we wouldn't have cared even if we played for 250 grand as long as, as long as we had a crack at the Australian Open title. Yeah. So that that's what I don't like about it being robbed away. And I also don't like how we don't play the Australian Masters anymore. Like I used to grow up and watch Bradley Hughes and all those guys put on that gold jacket at um, Huntingdale. And I've only played one or two Australian Masters. I just think that that's, that's wrong, you know. But, you know, IMG own the rights to the Australian Masters. So until they can make money out of it, you know, we won't have it, which is a big shame. Yeah, and I think, you know, certainly both Kieran and I work in sports administration. So we under, we, we kind of get the challenges of the past two years. We, we work in a sport that's been heavily impacted. I uprooted and moved across the country so that our sport could – get underway in 2020 and and did a similar thing in 2021 and it would just seemed like every other sport was moving forward with some sort of covid contingency plan but Mm. golf wasn't and when you're playing for the purses that as you mentioned they're not the purses that they were five ten years ago particularly so i i guess the challenge (laughs) like for you guys is how do you earn an income right? You've got 18 months out of the game. You're not playing competitive golf. You've got no status to go overseas and you, you it's hard to earn an income. So I guess that's where our frustration came from. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. No, it, it definitely was hard. Um, JobKeeper made it easier, but, you know, um, I enjoy going into my dad's jewellery shop and selling some jewellery and, you know, having a chat and talking some rubbish and geeing my old man up. So, yeah, I don't mind doing that once or twice a week. So, yeah, that was good to do. But, you know, it's um, it's funny when it gets taken away from you how how excited you get to go and play a tier two event before, mm. whereas before you'd sort of be dragging your feet because we had 15 of them in a year. But, you know, it's uh, puts things in perspective. We're still, I still do maintain that we're lucky to do what we do in Australia and play in Australia and play events and things like that. But, you know, yeah, having the two years off was hard. I guess what's been the, some of the biggest changes that you've seen on the tour since you know you first started you as we've mentioned you're you're um seasoned uh using your term uh what's been some of the biggest biggest changes that you've noticed in the tour i guess off the bat i'm sure there's probably like distance like all of those golf specific things and prize money and all of that sort of stuff like is there just sort of some themes that maybe you can paint that that have changed the the themes i i can see now is that amateurs come and there's no fear anymore to play with a pro like i remember when i was one of the best amateurs in australia i'd come and play with a pro and i think i was out of my depth they come now and they just don't give a shit Mm. they don't care what you've won what you've played how you played they are so ready to go now and that's a credit to a lot of these amateur um bodies you know like golf new south wales and golf australia they have these guys ready now when i was just coming through at new south wales institute of sport we were just sort of they were just sort of trying to mould us into the complete golfer. So that was just coming in and that was, you know, all based around Tiger's impact and that sort of stuff and, you know, doing everything off the course to make you play good on the course. But these guys are ready to go now Um, and they can come out of the gate and shoot 65 and no one scares them. Um, But, you know, you see that all over the the world now. But, um, yeah, there's no... There's no fear anymore for the young guys and they're ready to go and ready to win events. You know, like you saw Jack Thompson the other week and a few of the other guys like that, they'll just win now, no problems. Um, The second thing I see is, as you said, is length. Like when I first turned pro, there was no one within 30 metres of me off the tee. I was the longest on tour easily. Um, And now I think I'm still the longest on the tour. I'm going to maintain that until someone um, (laughs) someone wants to have a crack at the title. But, um, yeah, there's definitely guys coming in now. Josh Armstrong, guys like that, that can move it as well. Um, and even some of these younger guys, they'll come and they'll be 80 kilos, five foot 10, and I'll be 15 metres in front of them. Whereas I used to be able to hit my two iron past most guys in the field. So, but see, back in back in those days, you know, I was sort of, sort of always into my gym training and stuff off the course, and that was a big interest of mine, and no one was really doing it as much, um, in Australia anyway. But... Um, yeah, it's sort of they're all becoming the the well-rounded pro now. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's definitely different, but it's good. Pushes me. It's it is amazing, and you've got to give credit to to Golf Australia as much as we just gave them a, a little wrap over the knuckles. There, you know, it's kind of a theme on this yeah, show. No, I'll give credit when credit's due as well, mate. They they are producing some genuine talented golfers, and, and it's it's amazing. I think that fear that you talk about is is so true. I liken it to. I don't know if you've ever skied before or snowboarded. Like you watch six and seven year old kids snowboard or ski down a mountain and they mm. fucking bullet a gate. They don't care. They just mm. go for it. Whereas 28 year old me, I'll be like, oh shit, there's a bit of a bump there. I might, <laughs> might just be a bit yeah, more careful. It's funny. Like, you know, you can put it down to as well. You know, these, these guys don't have any scar tissue yet. Mm. Um, I heard Nathan Green say that one time to Dimmy about someone and they said, yeah, they've got no fear because they haven't, they haven't, um, 
slept on the ground at a pro-am um, at the back of Rockhampton on a mouldy mm. floor and that sort of stuff. They haven't done that. They haven't missed, you know, eight cuts in a row overseas or they haven't had their ass hanging out of their pants and having to um, borrow money off people. You know, that sort of stuff can can shape a, shape a, um, a sportsman, you know. So, um, you know, it's great to see those guys out there doing that. But, yeah, I think um, having having – great preparation from golf Australia and golf New South Wales and things like that is, is there, but yeah, you know, definitely there's no scar tissue there yet. So um, that's why I'm always interested to see how the, how the guys keep going. Exhibit A with Kirsten Rudgley winning the Athena over the weekend. <laughs> Amateur from with, WA. Yeah. I, I played with, um, with her maybe two years ago at the TPS and her mum was caddying for her and I'd never seen a, a girl have a short game like that touch around the greens, especially in amateur, you know, that was, um, that was unreal to see. Um, yeah. She's definitely got some game and um, yeah, really nice person too. Speaking of length as well, hits a big ball as well. Yeah. So yeah. It's exciting for uh, exciting for the next generation. Yeah, Let's sure. well, what are we, we're probably 20 minutes in. Let's go to the very first question that we always ask people. Where did golf yeah. start? How did it all come about? I read you were quite a good tennis player as well growing up. How did golf yeah, um, enter the, the four? Dad, dad was a professional tennis player and I used to play tennis. I wanted to be a tennis player like dad was. Um, but then every Sunday, dad would go for a hit of golf. Um, and I asked mum, where's dad going? Mum said, oh, he's going to golf. I was like, why can't I go? And then mum said, yeah, go. Mum was probably stoked to get myself and my brother um, out of the house so yeah i went with dad and i used to sit on the back of his uh, his pilgrim wheeling buggy you remember those old pilgrim yeah. things I, yeah. I don't know yeah so I used to sit on the back of that and i used to hit a seven iron and go around and i i was playing tennis and golf at a decent level like i'd play state tennis sort of under 12s under 13s and then i'd play state golf under 12s and under 13s as well and it sort of got to a point where i had to choose if i wanted to be a tennis player or a golfer and I had a lot of power in tennis, like my golf, but I never really um, was fast enough side to side. Um, being a big dude and that sort of stuff, I've never been much of a runner. I don't like running, but yeah. Um, but yeah, the turning point was when I was beating a guy five love it in a district, and we went, uh, we changed ends, and a kid spat on my back. And dad, being an old tennis player and and that sort of stuff, he nearly got into it with one of the other dads, and dad him and dad were up again. Uh, dad was up against the fence with the other father and dad said, flog this kid six love and we're never coming back and playing tennis again. So I flogged him six love. We went in the car and dad said, let's just play golf. So, um, yeah. So from there, um, I played a lot of the Jack Newton junior golf events and they were unreal. That, that was one of the best things I ever did was playing those and competing against other kids and, um, competing against my brother was always good too. He was two years older than me and a good golfer, but, it always sort of pushed me to try and beat him. So, now that was a big help. But, yeah, my old man's been a massive influence in my golf. And, you know, I always talk to him now still. And it's great. One of some of my favourite times are having a hit of golf with my dad in a Wednesday or a Saturday comp down at Port and having a laugh. And it's funny now I'm telling him what to do. <laughs> Did you grow up playing against your old man once with your golf? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, it's sort of um, – we played um, – there was three of us in the A pennant team um, and we played for Port Kemba down here. So myself, dad and my brother. So there was three out of seven of us were ties and we won the, we won the, um, the pennant down here. And that was, I, I don't think that's been done since, but yeah, that was pretty good. But I don't think dad liked it when I was starting to play in front of him. 
Um, and I don't think dad liked it when I started hitting it past him when I was about 10 or 11 either. Dad always talks about that. So, I, Well, I was just yeah, going to ask the, the question I was going to ask. Do you remember beating your old man for the first time? I don't, I don't remember beating him, but I think I was about 10 or 11. I, I think I was off about four when I was 12. So, Is that yeah, right? But I was, I was just, yeah, but I was the size of a man by that point. Anyway, I think I was <laughs> I think I was six foot one, hundred kilos when I was ten. <laughs> so you had the length, length yeah. to just vomit past the old man. Yeah. So what? So you make the, the decision that golf's the game to to pursue. What's that sort of next period of your life like? Because I guess, as you said, you were sort of 12, 13 at that point. But then, you know, you get into the next stage of your life in high school, and and other sports come yeah. into your life, and and you know, just generally life gets in the way, but what's that sort of next period of your life like where you, I guess you've kind of got to take it a bit more seriously, but you're also trying to be a teenager at the same time. Yeah, it was, it was good. It was good. You know, like it, um, I went to an all boys school. So, um, and a lot of them were, it was more sort of like a soccer rugby league sort of school. I love rugby league. So, um, but yeah, you know, you didn't get much respect being a, being a tall, a tall ranger playing golf at, a, at an all boys <laughs> school. But yeah, I think I was big enough that I could sort of um, shut a few of them up. But yeah, that it was, um, it was, it was hard, but it was good. You know, like I got so much time off school by playing golf and being good at golf that I wanted to get better so I could have more time off. So that was actually my thing. And I actually wanted to play rugby league for the school. And, um, dad said to me one time, he said, yeah, that's good. You want to play, but if you get injured, he said, you won't be able to get time off school to play golf. I was like, oh shit, I'm so not playing footy. (laughs) So I just kept practicing. I just kept practicing and taking it really serious. You know, when you start making a few teams and things like that. I made the New South Wales junior team when I was 15. And, um, you know, like you get some trips away and you have the camaraderie with the boys. And, um, yeah, that, that sort of stuff was unreal. Um, so the more you get of that, it was it was addictive. So the harder I practised and, and the better I wanted to play. And then, you know, you, you turn 17, 18 and things like that. And, you know, it's, um, probably half the guys go by the wayside. They start getting on the piss and start chasing girls and things like that. and I, I just, you know, you know, you do things like that, but um, I just wanted to, I just wanted it. I wanted to be a golfer and I, and I wanted to play and I always wanted to be a pro. So, you know, I got on the other side of that and worked hard and had a decent sort of amateur, amateur career. And I said to myself, as soon as I play for Australia, I'm going to turn pro. So um, I, I won the New South Wales amateur stroke play um, at Bonnie Doon actually with with Jason Scrivener, we tied and I got into the St Andrews Lynx Trophy and the British Amateur. So I played over there and at the time they had a an event where Australia played England called the Ashes. And I think I got the call up because I was already going over there, but hey, I'm taking it. <laughs> I played I ended up playing for Australia in the Ashes and um I got belted four and three and three and two by the number two and three amateur in the world, but I did my best. I did my best. Yeah, we played at Royal Birkdale. It was about four degrees and it was a Lynx course. And I don't know. I did my best. But yeah, as soon as I as soon as I played for Australia, I, I wanted to turn pro. So yeah, that's what happened. So golf was always the the end end sort of point. Like being a professional golfer was always the end point. Throughout that that time, obviously, as you mentioned you know, um, your mates are starting to go out and all that sort of stuff. Like mm. how, how difficult is that? I mean, like I've worked around professional athletes and they always tell me these, you know, stories that, oh, when I was 17, 18, all our mates were going out and partying, but 
you know, I was dedicated to the the cause. If I wanted to be a professional athlete, then I mm. had to, you know, give up all of that stuff. How difficult is that? Like at that point, because I don't think most we, people would understand it, right? Cho- yeah, you just have to choose your time. See, so I sort of did it as like I'd work my ass off for three weeks or a month or something like that, and then I'd earn I'd earn a night out sort of thing, mm-hmm. or um, you know, like it gets to the point where you're playing so much that your best mates are golf mates, which yep. is how my mates are now. We've got a really close group of mates called the Chines and there's eight or nine of us. And, you know, we're, we're all golfers or ex golfers and we're all the best, you know, super best friends and we all hang out, but it gets to a time where you're going out, turns into maybe after a tournament on a Sunday or something like that. And then, you know, you work your ass off and play for three weeks straight and then you go for a beer with the boys after you play. So, um, yeah, that's how I sort of got around it. Um, and then you hung over a shit on a Monday and then you just try to get it ready for the Thursday again. <laughs> What's um, that, That's a real interesting one that you've got, you've got your group there that you play with. I mean, you're now, obviously you've been a professional golfer for quite a while, but are you still able to enjoy golf with your mates like that? Like I find it fascinating at times. Like I, I wonder if you and I went out and played nine holes, would you – like I would be in the frame of mind, like, yeah, I want to, I want to play well, but I'm going to have a beer and maybe listen to a bit of music while I play. Are you going out being like, right, I want to shoot par or like, how do you no. process that social golf? Like as a professional, social- golf? do you just not give a shit? Like, yeah, you kind of just don't give a shit. Yeah. yeah. But you know, there, there is always things that you can work on. Um, so trying to do full routine and things like that, it always helps, but you know, that is hard at the same time if people have, rubbish etiquette and things like that so a lot of the time when we're doing that we're just doing it for a social time we're not doing it to get anything out of it for our golf it's probably detrimental but you know that that's a part of golf is is the um is the social aspect so um yeah you know it's like when we play a pro-am um or a sponsor's day before a tournament you know like it's good to go out and meet people and um and mingle and you know um establish new relationships but at the same time, it's not really doing much for your golf other than you just seeing the course. Yeah. So, yeah. So take us through the next next sort of phase of your life there. I mean, maybe move us to, to the decision to turn pro because obviously now there's so many yeah. ways that you can go about being an amateur. You can stay in Australia and play all yeah. those events that exist. You can go to college. You can You can basically turn pro when you're 17 if you want to. You can kind of do whatever you want now, but like, what was your sort of decision to turn pro like? Who did you consult? How did that all come about? Uh, I spoke to I spoke to a few people um, about turning, but I sort of just made my own decision. Really, um, I think I was twenty or twenty one, and in hindsight, I probably shouldn't have done it. But I got two starts. I got a start in New South Wales PGA and New South Wales Open as a pro. Um, I think because I was captain of the men's team in New South Wales, I sort of tried to use that as a bit of leverage and got to start in those two. So I turned pro for those two events and sort of hoped that I could make some money um, and get a tour card. I paid my affiliate fee and all that sort of stuff, got belted, played average. Um, and then um, I, actually I went to I went to Q school and missed my card by a shot, I think. Um, so the next year I'd already become pro. I had nowhere to go. So I actually went over to America with a good mate of mine called Josh Reinflesh. Um He's the head teaching pro at the Australian now. So went over and played on the e-golf tour over there. Um, so I think that might be something like Hooters tour or something like that, or they call it something else now. It's had about 12 names since, but yeah, went over there and played and that was sort of good to go and play some pay to plays and, um, you know, 
learn how to play overseas and things. So I did that for three months, came back, went to Q school, got my card. Um, and that was, that was great. So that, that helped me play um, events because I was sort of in no man's land. Um, yeah, so then I came back and I got an average card. And then my old man said to me, or I think I was talking to a couple of different guys at, at the time, they said, go and play every pro-am you can. I was like, really? So I went out to Wagga, went out to Leeton, I went all these places. And it was great, you know, like the people you meet and um, and hang out with at those tournaments are great. But, um, yeah, I went and played everything. And then I went over to Papua New Guinea to play, which is rough over there, man. It is rough. <laughs> but it's good. Um, I, and, I, and I had two really hot weeks. I won the Lay, the Lay Marobi Open and then I came second in the Papua New Guinea Open. And I got some better status. and. They give there was long drive comp over there every every round I think, and they were fifteen hundred bucks for long drive over there, and I was like licking my chops every time they had them. So I don't know. I think Dimmy said Dimmy did say to me, he said, "Mate, you've won more black money as a pro, like more more brown paper bag money as a pro than anyone I've ever met." So yeah, that was um, yeah that was two good weeks over there, and then it sort of um, I sort of started to kick on a little bit in Australia, and yeah, um, yeah, it was good. What's it like when you win? Like that sort of in PNG, you I mean you're holding the trophy at the end. I guess like you've won amateur tournaments as you mentioned, but I guess like what's that? that moment like when you win as a professional i guess is we'll get to new south wales pga in a, in a moment but like i'm always fascinated to understand what the emotions are of people who win for the first time like yeah belief, it was unreal like, like, like what is I it feel, uh you don't it, you feel you're that in the zone that even if you hit a bad shot you don't even care because you're you're playing that well that you think you can get it up and down a, mm. a shot sticks in my mind when, at Lay in Morobi Open, which is a there was good players playing over there at the time. You know, like I, I played against Josh Younger down the stretch there when I was, you know, first year as first or second year as a pro, and I knew that he was a gun. And um, I hit this five iron off seventeen. It was a dog fat block, horrendous thirty meters ride of the green on this par three, and it didn't even worry me at all. And it had the worst line, everything like that. And I just looked at the shot and I hit it, and I hit it to a foot, and it's just like you know when you're on. So we went up the last, I hammered this drive, I don't know, with, with everything I had and I pitched it on and I two-putted and it was, and it was all done. And I thought, how good was this? Like, and you sort of, it's like you're playing without any thought. And it's, it is, it's really funny how people say, oh, you know, they talk about in the zone, that sort of stuff. But there's probably, there's been three weeks in my life where I've played in the zone and, you know, like the shots are hitting themselves which is unreal, but yeah, it's, um, it is funny. The, le- the less you think and the less you try, the better you play, which is such a stupid sport, but yeah, that's it. It is. It's exactly like that. Even for amateurs who are listening to this would be yeah. thinking that exactly. Uh, 2014, uh, New South Wales PGA Championship out at Riverside Oaks, a one-shot winner over Scott Arnold, uh, 19 under par. Uh, take us there. Take us through the week. What that's like. Take us through that last little bit coming down the stretch. Um, again, I, I'm just going back through articles. You know, you were saying that you got pretty hot early. You were, you know, you were sort of on. I'm assuming this is one of the weeks that you probably thought you, you might have been in the zone. Yeah. Obviously, Scott Arnold missing a birdie part. Like, just take us through that. 
as an emotion because I I guess you know that's probably well I, I dare say that's one of the best performances that you've had of your career. Obviously, you've had some really great performances at the Aussie Open, but to be holding yeah. the trophy is something you know very special as well. Yeah, that was unreal. I sort of I had I even had an average year again um, at the start there, but I I was really struggling mentally, and then I got onto a guy Wayne Persky put me onto a guy called Ben Roberts, who I still work with now. Um, and we started doing some mental stuff and um, it's, it was funny. We really tried to simplify everything and not try so hard. So I, I started doing um, some mental stuff on the course and rating my pre-shot routine. And that's all I'd rate, not the result of the shot, my pre-shot routine only. And we made a, a thing for the start of that week that I'd play with no care and I'd hit driver every single hole, no matter if I'm nervous, if it doesn't, if it doesn't call for it. I hit driver and I had to just make it work. So I had my good mate Dorso, who's actually going to caddy for me this week at Bonnie Doon. He, um, he came and Ben tuned him up and Ben said, listen, don't let him, don't let him um, not hit driver and, you know, ask him if he did his routine and mark it down um, after, after every shot. So I did that and Dorso and I actually nearly had a domestic on, on the 10th hole in the third round. I was playing that good. And I said, nah, I said, you can't hit driver here every day, Dorso. I said, I can't do it four rounds in a row. So I'm going to hit four iron. And Dorso, Dorso said, no, I don't give a shit if you hit it out of bounds. Hit driver. And I said, no. I said, you listen to me. He said, no. He goes, I'll walk off. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, all right, I'll hit driver. And I tugged it and I thought I hit it OB. And I go, I fucking told you, Dorso. I said, I should have just hit four on, blah, blah, blah. We walk up there. It's a meter in bounds. I had pitching wedge in this par five. I hit it on and made four. And he said, see, shut up. <laughs> so I just did that. I was like, oh, my God. So I did it the rest of the week. Um, and Dorso and I got over that. That was that was funny. But, yeah, we got over that. Um, <laughs> and in the last round, I just I got hot as anything. Got hot early. Um, and I actually missed a few parts. It was like um, It was like I was playing on autopilot. It was unreal. You know, I, I was hitting every single drive on the fairway, 330 metres. It was just like the the best I can hit it is what I was doing. And I was binning putts um, left, right and centre. Like whatever read I, I had, it was the read. It's just, it was, yeah, it was unreal to, um, it was unreal to do. But yeah, um, it was, it was crazy to go from being so lost to um, having my first tool win. It was very surprising to tell you the truth, but yeah, it was, um that's a real special week. Is it hard to control yourself when, as you mentioned, you get, you're getting hot, right? And, and you're either in the lead or you're in contention, pretty yeah. big tournament. You're like, everyone knows that you're in, you're in contention, right? <laughs> like you can't, can't yeah. get from that or you're in the lead. Like, how do you kind of internalize that at the moment, in that moment? Because you're walking down the fairway and you're going, right, like I've just made a couple of birdies we're in the lead, we're in contention. Like, like your brain can just move so quickly. Like it happens to every golfer, whether you're an amateur or whether you're a pro when you're playing well, like your things start moving very, it is, it's hard. Yeah. Things start moving quickly and your head always skips in front. But from what I've learned, you need to um, accept that you're starting to skip in front, skip into your lifting the trophy or skip into your signing a card for 64 and things like that. You need to accept that you're doing that, pull yourself up, and then just focus on each pre-shot routine or each shot and just hit the shot that's in front of you. So um, that's very important. But, yeah, you know, everyone does it. I don't care who it is. 
everyone gets in front. Everyone starts seeing themselves lift the trophy. Um, everyone sees himself. Oh, I can. Oh, I can birdie sixteen. I can birdie eighteen. And then, or you think the other way. Oh, hopefully I can par in and I'll make the cut. Yeah. Or I could actually bogey seventeen, eighteen. I'll still make the cut. You know, it's funny the things you think. You know, they're so defeatist and rubbish. But um, that's that's a part of being a sportsman, I guess. Moving forward to 2015, and and I guess by points one, your your best finish that you've had were um, in your career, the T5 at the uh, the Aussie Open. Quite a phenomenal week, I guess. Uh, won by Matty Jones, and um, who was a, a shot of header of Scotty and, and Jordan Spieth as well. I mean, how how does that week sort of? What's the build up to that week? like you know you're playing in the australian open it's something that is i'm assuming that you've grown up idolizing what it's one of the great great tournaments that we have not that we've seen it for a couple of years as we mentioned but Mm. what's that week like what's it like finishing t5 what are your expectations going into that week like how just give us a paint paint us a picture of all of that it was funny i i was going back and forth to america so much at the time so i got through first stage of q school um over in Atlanta. So I went to Atlanta. I got through first stage of Q school. I came back. I played two events and then I went back to um, Dallas to TPC Craig Ranch for second stage. I got through there. I birdied the last two holes to get to get in, I think at 22nd or something like that to get into finals. So I came in hot. Um, I had an okay week at the Australian Masters, made the cut, didn't really get much out of it, but I felt like I was playing good. And then I came into Aussie Open and it was sort of, you didn't have time to think it was Aussie Open because I'd had so much golf. I was playing so much golf. I think I played four weeks in a row with two of them being international trips. So I came in and I just sort of rolled it in. And I don't know, my timing was unreal. Like I, that first round when I had five under, that's the worst I could have had. Like I was, I couldn't hit it any better. That's probably the best I've ever hit it in, a, in one round. Five under off the chops in... Uh, at the Australian in an Australian Open was yeah pretty serious to start. So I had a few of my mates that got on me for first round leader because there was a bit of um, bit of hype going around with how good I hit it in the practice round. So I had a few mates that um, might have might have built a pool or something out, out in their backyard <laughs> because of that. But yeah, it was um, no, nah, it was unreal. And then you know to to keep going through the week, I do I I really do think that if you could have taken my brain out of my head and maybe taught me how to handle the media and 50,000 messages of people telling you, um, oh, I remember when I helped you that time and mm. I gave you that putting tip and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was sort of when Facebook wasn't as active as it is now. But, yeah, it's funny. You know, if I would have learned how to manage that sort of stuff, I, I really do think I would have gone a bit better. But, um, you know, it was it was a good learning curve. But, um, yeah, definitely the, the best, probably the, the best week I've played um, under the pump and with everyone around and that sort of stuff. It was, it was unreal. I love that course too. That's probably my favorite course. So I love the Australian. How do you, how do you put, put it all into perspective? Cause I guess T5 is such an interesting position to finish, I guess, in, in the sense that you're so close to victory, but at the same time, you know, you're not holding the trophy. Right. So like, mm. how do you, put that into into perspective because you, you you must walk away as you said and go like I couldn't have played any better like I've I've done all I can but mm. at the same time you're like fuck I was really close like I was really mm. close like so how do you nah, there were, put that I in your head right week, yeah I did make some piss week bogeys because I I was getting in my own head you know yeah. thinking ahead and things like that so 
you do do that. But as a whole, it's it's the best I've played for a week. But you know, I I do feel like um, yeah, the T five. I didn't think I was that far behind, but to miss out on the on the British Open um, spot that I missed out on hurt a bit. Um, yeah, I I rushed I rushed one part um, on one of the par fives, and I sort of missed a tap in in that last round. And, you know, I, I still do think about that sometimes. But you know, I think everyone else sort of missed missed a two footer that week as well. The greens are pretty slick. People don't really realise at home the difference between your club comp greens and you know um, twelve on the stint with slope. Mm. So yeah, but it was um, yeah, it was a good week. All right, let's uh, let's finish off with some uh, lighter-hearted questions on, on things that I found online. Golf, wow. super, golf superstition that you never use a number three golf ball in a tournament. Any story yes. behind that? Um, I don't know. I think I played really bad with a number three one time, and then I tried blacking them out. I tried blacking out the number, so I didn't like it. But, you know, I'm that superstitious sometimes that if I'm playing shit, I'll pull out a three because – I think that the three will break me playing shit. So, and now I'm, um, I don't, I try not to have a tee that looks different because then I start to favor a tee as well. Like, or, and then if I hit a shit drive with that tee, I'll throw it away because the tee's fault. So I'm actually, I started using those tour tees now. I'm, yeah. um, I'm a tour tee guy. So I'm using them and you can't tell the difference whether, there you go. That's right. Yeah. So you, you can't tell the difference whether, um, and I only need one in my pocket because I can't break them. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have the superstition with the tees anymore. But yeah, the number three thing—that's a go, mate. <laughs> I just pull stay whatever. away from them. They're I just bad. pull whatever number out of the box. I don't nah, care. they're mate. dog shit. Stay away from the three, mate. That's a tip of mine. <laughs> when you're playing off twenty-one, mate, I don't think it's the uh, the ball or the tees fault or. Uh, I'm anything. telling you, you would be the most solid nineteen handicap if you didn't use threes. All right, I'll uh, I'll note I'll note that down. You once met Alice Cooper at a golf course in Charlotte. Tell me about Alice Cooper. Yeah, that's when I was um that's when I was playing um those e golf tournaments over in over in America, and I Josh and I were playing a tournament, and I I saw this old guy with long black hair hitting around, and I go, Josh, that guy's famous. I'm telling you, he's famous. Josh is like, yeah, maybe. And then I said, stuff it. I'm going to hit a drive over on their fairway. And I'll say, sorry, I've tugged it. So I hit a drive over there and I go, oh my God, Josh, that's Alice Cooper. He said, you're kidding. And he still had the black eye makeup on. No. And he's playing golf with, with the <laughs> black eye makeup on. And the drummer was there too. I forget what the drummer's name was, but yeah, he was playing as well. And I got a photo with him. And the bloke looked 140 when it, <laughs> that was 15 years ago. I don't know how old that bloke would look now. But yeah, he was he was a really nice guy though, and he absolutely loves golf. So yeah, that was pretty cool. He yeah, uh, he's a um, he's probably only about like 65, 70 or something like that. But he does look <laughs> he looks probably triple that. Now I reckon. All right, this is going to take us down a rabbit hole. This one because it'll lead into some Instagram finds that I've had. You would. This is a two-parter. You'd like to trade places with Jay Cutler for a day, and I quote here just to be massive. End quote. You'd also like to be featured in Flex magazine because I wish I was in that good of a shape. Oh, wow. You're really getting into my early 20s here. You, these are 10 years ago, minimum. No, nah, I was, I just, um, I don't know, I got a bit of an interest in, in training and things like that. And Jay Cutler was my favorite bodybuilder. So I used to always idolize him and things like that. So, 
No, you're definitely taking me back to the um, <laughs> Jay Cutler ziz days and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, they were the days, mate. Well, that's a great segue getting into Ziz because uh, I've pulled up a photo here from uh, the 12th of March, 2014 on Instagram. If anyone would like to go and find this as they listen, uh, it's a photo of, of you and a, and a bunch of other mates. Uh, one of them is Dimitrios Papadados. Out at Future Music Festival, you're the only one with a singlet on, which is, uh, is impressive. Yeah. Back when those um, little like canvas shoes we're, we're back in the go. They were the go, eh? They were. Uh, hashtag Ziz Generation, hashtag Ziz, <laughs> hashtag Muzzin is my favourite there, Link. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right, mate. Good fun um, out at the festivals, I no, imagine. They, they were unreal. Yeah, they were unreal. We used to go to um, Future and um, Stereo and things like that and have some fun. And um, Yeah, I was the only one with the singlet on because I didn't want to dwarf the other eight of them and make them look rubbish. So I had it on. I was trying to be nice to my mates. But yeah, no, we used to have some fun. We've, um, Dimmy and I have always been into our dance music and stuff. And it's something that we've always, um, been keen on. And we've gone to the festivals and seen Hardwell and gone and seen Swedish House Mafia and things like that. So yeah, we've always had some fun. Who's the best act you've seen in life? Swedish House Mafia were phenomenal. At, I reckon stereo, it might have been stereo song, or maybe even future music a few years back over here in Perth. I remember seeing them and just before they broke up, and it was I- unbelievable. I think the best I've seen live was I went over when I actually that's funny the the when I went over to America before that first in 2015 before that first stage of Q school I went to Vegas for two nights with my mate Gleeso and we went to Wet Republic and Tiesto played and we and when we're at Wet Republic and Tiesto was playing and we're having a muzz mucking around, you know. And then um, these guys, these Irish guys, were in the VIP and they said, "Hey, where are you from? Are you Irish? Because I'm red hair and all yeah. that." And they go, are you Irish? I said, "No, nah, I'm not Irish. I'm Australian." They said, "Come up here." So I went into their VIP. I was legit eight feet away from Tiesto and he was pumping everything he had. And that was the best I've ever seen was Tiesto at Wet Republic. But probably after that was seeing Hardwell at. Um, at that future was pretty serious too. He he ended the night. So yeah, they're they're two of the best acts I've seen. Yeah, haven't uh, aligned a, a golf trip or tour tour school with Tomorrowland. Oh, well, been... it's always been our dream, mate. It's always been our dream. But I think um <laughs> I think I'm getting a little bit old for that now. <laughs> I, mean, um, I don't even know if it's still running. Surely it's damn still right, going. it's still running. Don't worry, mate. I still keep my tabs on Tomorrowland. No, yeah. no, no. That's <laughs> um no, that, that's a, that's always been a dream or ultra. Um, yes. I've always wanted to go to Ultra too, but yeah, I now, don't think that's happening. I'm getting married in three weeks, mate. You can't be talking to me about Tomorrowland and all these things. I'm shut down now. It's over. First no dance, first no dance song, Tiesto, you know, something yes. like that. Yeah. Put no, that on the list. We're gonna, yeah, yeah, we're gonna have a bit of dance music there. Yeah. So, I, my girl, my girl's in the, you know, that sort of stuff too. My girl's um got more muscles than me, mate. She's into the gym and into the dance music more than me. She's a beast. So. <laughs> Uh, if there's if there's not enough photos of either you or, or Dimmy without his shirt on on your Instagram profile, then <laughs> it's closely followed by cars. Um, we had Louis Dobler on the pod, who is uh, a self confessed rev head as well. So yeah, uh, there's going right back to the days. I'm I think I'm looking at a, a Mitsubishi Evo by the looks of things. Yeah. Uh, and more recently in life, I reckon I've seen, I have to scroll a fair way back here. I think I've seen a Subaru WRX as well. 
Like, yeah. take, us, take us through the love of cars, mate. Where did that begin? And uh, I think my old man got an Audi, got an Audi Quattro turbo wagon when I was younger. And we used to have Tuesday Tiptronic night. So when we used to play golf, dad used to put it in the sports mode and have a bit of fun on the way home. And that sort of got me in the cars. And um, yeah, I, I always really was into that for some reason. I don't know. And then I got on my P's and I got into pulsars and that sort of stuff. And I always had to, my, my number plate on my first pulsar that I ever bought was Mr. Two Liter. That was me, mate. Don't worry about that. I had blue and gray leather interior, pulsar triple S. I was the coolest dude in Australia. Legit. No, that was, yeah, that was horrendous. But um, yeah, and then I, I sort of got off my P's and got my Evo. Um, and that was unreal. That was, I did some, serious stuff in that i used to go to power crews and try to beat up on all the v8 guys and um yeah it ended i ended up i i made the engine have so much power that i broke the driveline all the time so i broke the rear diff and the gearbox in two months and i had all this uh and i had no money left in my account so i thought you know what i can't do this anymore (laughs) so i sold it and then um i missed it too much so I ended up, I got my WRX STI and then I've, I vowed to my dad that I was going to leave the stock turbo on it and I was going to leave it stock and just have some fun. And now it's ended up as a um, 450 kilowatt monster with animal number plates on it. So, yeah, that's me, mate. <laughs> well, you and Louie can talk about cars next time you see. Louie learn all these car stuff from me, mate. Probably, exactly right. Yeah, no, Louie's a good mate of mine. So, yeah, we talk about cars. He's into that V8 rubbish. I don't know. I've never <laughs> seen him. They're already, they're already so far behind me, five oh. car lengths back. So, <laughs> I'm not really into them. But, yeah, no, uh, I love all cars. Last question before we let you go. Uh, our, we've got uh, some very good friends in, in Simon and Blitz Golf uh, as well. You've played uh, in some blitz golf uh, events, I believe. Um, yeah. Or, or I think, I'm not sure if it got cancelled at the time, but uh, plenty of it on your Instagram. We've been massive supporters of this. We think it's a, a wonderful, different format of the game, something that the game so desperately needs. Um, sure. I guess, you know, blitz golf, what's your take on it? And, and I guess, you know, I, obviously I you think love that it as well. The future, the future of pro sort of has to start leaning towards blitz golf. I think the concept's unreal. I went and played how long blitz the other week. Like it's mm. in the middle of nowhere, how long? And that is the best condition track I've played in country. Um, are we still, were we still in New South Wales there? Yeah, I don't I know. So. Yeah. yeah. Country New South Wales. Yeah. So well, I went to how long and played that event and, you know, it, the vibe at a blitz event it's serious but you can still talk to the crowd and you know having the six hole splits and then down to three then down to one i just think is unreal so um i'm a huge supporter of blitz and what um simon's doing and i think it's unreal um timing and all that sort of stuff isn't really lining up at the moment for me to go there with me organizing helping organize the wedding and getting married and things like that but i think um i think that blitz is definitely the way of the future and i i want to see more of them and I think that more clubs should take it up because it's it's great for members to come and hang out with pros and get up and um, up close and see how pros play their course and have some fun as well. So, yeah, I'm a huge advocate for Blitz. Yeah, we love it too. Hopefully uh, we see more adoption of it. La- I promise, last question. What is what is the plan for yeah. the rest of 2022? Uh, obviously, we're pretty, well, I guess we're over halfway in the, the Aussie season at the moment. What's the, what's the rest of the plan? Yeah, we got a few left. Um, so I've got Bonnie Doon and um, Bonnie Doon and Cypress Lakes um, to play. And then I'm missing New South Wales Open Week because 
um, because of our wedding. I'm getting married in New South Wales Open Week, so that hasn't matched up. We booked it two years ago at a venue, and that's when the wraparound year didn't exist. And then the wraparound year came, and they put a 400 grand to there. So, yeah, not um not ideal for everything, but you know, I think I'd rather be um, I'd rather be getting married. So. Um, doing that and then yeah a couple left and then um, as I spoke to you before I might try and do an Asian Q school and hopefully they might even have that first stage of European Q school down at Rosebud if they bring that back the DP um, DP world tour so if they do that I might try my try my go down at Rosebud uh, at first stage and then if you go over if I get through that you can go over sort of two weeks in a row to Europe but um, we'll see how it all pans out. I'm not sure if I want to go back to America this year. I want to try something different. So, um, yeah, we'll just see how it all goes. But, yeah, there's a lot going on. But, yeah, it's all exciting. We wish you the very best of luck for whatever path you choose. Wish you the very best of luck for your wedding as well, two years in the making. Uh, it's yeah. uh, obviously been a long time coming. So best of luck for the rest of 2022, mate. Thanks for jumping on the 19th tee, having a chat to us, and uh, hopefully we see you out at the course very soon. Sounds good. Thanks for the chat.